Good evening, Travis Allen here uh, with my co-host James Chilcott and special guest Todd Stevens. Do you guys want to say hello? Uh, hey, Travis. Hey, James. Thanks for having me on again. Welcome, welcome back, uh, our resident SEG superstar, uh, Mr. Stevens, streamer extraordinaire, and uh, popper of irrational bubbles. When we're reviewing a brand new set, and especially one as exciting and perhaps misunderstood as Dominaria. Oh yeah, this has been just this is the best set I've seen in a. I can't even tell you how long this this set is just awesome. We already just had our first week of standard where it made a huge impact. Um, this is just one of the best sets we've seen in such a long time. Yeah, I, I've probably asked you this before and I just don't remember. How long did you say you've been playing Magic? Uh, since World Wake, really uh, competitively. You know, I played like when I was a kid a little bit, but you know, like that's when okay. I started really was World Wake. So this doesn't even hit the nostalgia notes for you in the way that it might for other people. And you're still saying it's an amazing set. Yep. Yep. Hmm. Like, let me ask you a question. Does does Urza mean anything to you? I mean, obviously with modern and the Urza lands and everything like that. Um, that's kind of <laughs> that's kind of about it. I played like when I first started when I was a kid, I actually did play a little bit during Urza Saga and, you know, but just casual like kitchen table type decks. So, sure. um, you know, like one of my friends had a uh, like an original car and sil- silver golem deck and stuff. And so a little bit of nostalgia here, but not as much as other people. Because mm-hmm. I think like really, I mean, what's people have talked about dominaria expanding the player base i think it's more playing to the existing player base because it's so nostalgia laden um and there's so many throwbacks to various eras of of magic past um that a lot of this is helping people to reconnect with what got them most excited about the game in the first place and giving them all sorts of you know play patterns that are reminiscent of old school magic so like would you not would you agree that this set is is pretty focused on combat steps sets up standard to be a very combat oriented format i i would yeah that actually that that makes a lot of sense it really does the one thing the other thing it does is it is bringing control back in a big way with cards like teferi seal away um controls making a comeback for sure. So yeah, you have a lot of combat and then also control. And I know that like the spells and control were kind of like the, the thing back in the day. Like when you play cubes, you have all, all the cards, all like all the creatures are all new cards and all the spells are old cards kind of thing. And this is kind of bringing back that aspect as well. All right. So here's, here's the format we're going to run through for this evening. We're going to be going through the top 10 cards most likely to be financially relevant in multiple formats. So we're going to cover off standard, modern, EDH and brawl, um, and a little bit on casual magic. And we're going to talk about where the cards are located at their existing price points, you know, where they're currently sitting. And we're recording this uh, a few days past release weekend. So Prices are starting to build towards peak supply. A ton of product is being opened. Um, But the meta is still relatively fresh. And I think we can all agree that the standard meta especially is is still shaping up. (laughs) After week one, I would hope so. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's still a month until the the first pro tour with them. Yeah, we're we're still just uh, finding out what's what's good. Uh, the the first week was definitely filled with plenty of pretty easy to build decks and everything. So we're we're just going from here. Apparently, the the easy card to build with was Hazaret this weekend. <laughs> yep, plenty of Hazaret, and then plenty of like you know generic blue white control. Put the control cards together. Lots of those kind of decks. You know, I can't tell who the villain is in that scenario. <laughs> so, Todd, you just came off a top 10 finish this weekend at the Teams Tournament. Uh, and congratulations on that. The Coming out of that tournament, you were playing Sultai uh, mid-range in Standard um, with Scarab God at your top end. Uh, how did you feel coming out of the weekend with that deck? Is that still the deck you would be going to if you were playing more standard this week? Um, I I was very satisfied with the deck during the tournament, um, even kind of surprised. I did very well with it. Um, hadn't been doing as well on Magic Online leading up to the event. It's basically a mid-range deck where it has a very good sideboard and can uh, be tuned post-board to beat uh like you know whatever other deck the other people are playing a lot of the decks on week one are uh just very linear whether that is the hazard decks or the control decks i consider them very linear also because they just kind of do the same thing the whole time and they're easy to exploit and uh that's what i kind of made a mid-range deck that could kind of exploit uh every type of linear deck i don't think it's going to be a huge part of the metagame going forward or i mean what it like I may not even play it the next weekend if I was playing standard again. Um, but I was very happy with the deck week one. And uh, yeah, that's yeah. All right. So, I mean, a, a central uh, piece of the puzzle with that deck was uh, the currently highest priced card in Dominaria, Karn Cyan of Urza, which is sitting at $42, um, a lofty amount for any card that is just getting uh, into its supply curve. Um, how did Karn feel? Oh, Karn was amazing. That card is just very good, and it just goes into almost every strategy in standard. Forty-two dollar card, you're like that—that's really hard to keep. That like that's that's incredibly expensive for a card. But if there's one that can do it, I believe it could be Karn and Sionaverza. That card is just incredibly good. It's it's the reason why my deck was like playable at all. I would say so. Uh, this is the card I'm most curious about because he really seems to have come out of the gate so hard um, in a way that it's, I feel like it's been a while since we've seen a planeswalker hit the ground running this hard. And I actually was getting um, flashbacks to Innistrad because we saw Karn show up in legacy on opening weekend. And I don't remember the last time a planeswalker really did that. Uh, it was Liliana. I think it was Liliana the veil. Uh, like Reed Duke showed up week one was like him, the Turok Liliana the veil. And people are like flipping their shit. Cause they're like, is this the new thing in legacy? So, you know, we saw Karn in both the Red Prison and the Colorless Eldrazi strategy in Legacy, and it's it's sort of amazing. Um, and I expect he'll show up in Modern as well. So, like, is he is he that good? Yeah, yeah, he really is. We he was actually in Modern in in some of the decks as well. Um, I know Ross played against an Affinity player that oh, had did. Karn. Um, <laughs> yeah, they got to play Karn on turn three because of Mox Opal and make oh. a six six. You know, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. That's nasty. Yeah. Th this card is really that good. Um, and it slots into everything in standard, you know, like you want to play an aggressive deck, like it's better with Karns because the vehicles and all that kind of stuff, like that's, that's a really good strategy. You want to play like green, white mid range, put some Karns in there. Uh, the green, black 
snake deck, the one the classic had Karns in the in the main deck. No other real artifacts, I guess, like Ballista and Virgis Gearhole can just had some Karns also. Um, control decks, yeah, why not? Put some Karns in there. It's it goes into just everything, and we we could be looking at you know Karn Winter. I don't know if that's <laughs> lame, but you know, like it, it it's it's everywhere. So, are you comfortable saying that? Is this like a top five card in standard? Absolutely. I think it's just it's if it's not number one, like maybe like I think the only card that can compete with Karn as far as like being the number one card in standard would be Walking Blista. I think that's one and two Walking Blista. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask if it was number one. Um, So like, you know, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking like thirty five dollars might actually be a buy. Like maybe not like I'm going to spec on this, but if you need a set. Like you should 100% buy it at that price because it seems that good. Are you? Sounds like you're basically in the same position, right? Yeah, it's I. You know, just specking on cards that expensive that are you know just getting printed now is that's tough. But if you want to play standard, I would recommend pick, picking up your set. If you like playing, uh, maybe if you like playing Affinity or um, like those those uh, different colorless. Um, legacy decks you know may pick it up also um and i could see it even just kind of generating like new homes in in modern i don't know exactly what that would be yet but you know it's it's good enough to to kind of create new archetypes also like down the road you know like that wouldn't be something for for a little while but yeah no especially if you're planning on playing standard uh i don't really see it going down um i think even at like right now we're at a full uh, standard with a lot of sets, you know, at rotation, you're going to think that these dominaria cards will even just see more play because we'll have a uh, powerful Kaladesh like leaving the format. So um, I don't really see it seeing less play in the near future. So, so bold claim. So, I mean, this this was my pick last week and I called it to go from 35. It was, you could get it as low as 33, but I called it 35 to go to about 50. And that was predicated on the, the premise that uh, initial allocations for the set are essentially sold out. And it's going to be a few weeks until we get the real flood of supply. Um, this is something we've seen Wizards do again and again, where they will, and is common in retail in general, just to, you build up hype by making things seem more limited than they're going to be. And squeeze the, constrain the market on supply just long enough to get prices pumping and then let them fall back down slowly over time as you introduce more supply into the marketplace. So if that's true and supply is relatively constrained and standard is popular um, and we continue to see rumblings that he's good in both modern and or legacy, then I think that Karn can get to that 50 point. Otherwise, he starts slowly retreating back down under 30 would be my guess heading into early summer where we hit the like the sales lull for the brand um, for the for the year as people start to go outside and play less magic. And um, it's important to understand that past the initial supply constraint, this set is so, so popular. Everybody loves this set. So that means it's going to sell very, very, very well. And there are going to be tons of copies of these cards. And only the very best of them are going to be able to hold high price tags. And the two cards that I would compare it to aren't actually Liliana. I think you can go a little early, sooner than that. You can go to Jace Friend's Prodigy, um, when he spiked to 80 um, in a summer set and compare that to Gideon ally of Zendikar when he was dominating standard but had trouble getting up over 40. Um, and if you triangulate between the two of those and you figure that Karn is about as dominant as Gideon was and from a set that's opened about as much as a fall set normally is, then I think that 
you get in now, you might lose $10 a copy heading into summer. But if you've got to play with them in the interim, that's irrelevant because you need the copies to be competitive um, if it's in your deck. And as a longer term play, I think you can wait till summer sales or eBay coupons or what have you to get in lower and probably, if you believe in the modern legacy thesis, to be targeting foils, right? Yeah, yeah, that all sounds that all sounds very good. That's probably where it's going to be its low is in the summer because just all cards just go down in the summer. So, yeah, if you don't need them right now, that's that's a great time to uh, target picking them up besides just the normal rotation. Yeah, and I don't like foils at 80. However, I will say this. This goes for many of the cards that we'll talk about today that have long-term chops. Um, Russian foils in the in the wee hours of the morning <laughs> tend to pop up on eBay at unexpected times and places and should be snagged uh, discerningly. Um, because, well, well, we'll get into this a little bit more when we get to Mox Amber. The other two car- big cards in our top three for standard um, include Teferi Hero of Dominaria, which had a, a big weekend, and Lyra Dawnbringer. Um, Todd, were you surprised by how much Teferi you saw at the tables? No, no honestly, I wasn't um, because it's such an easy card to build around. It just kind of s- slots into already existing blue-eye control, um, and it is just so good. So it is a very good Planeswalker, and it's very easy to build around. Now, I don't expect these two cards, Teferi and Lyra, to hold these kind of price tags. These would be cards that I'd be, unless you're playing with them, looking to exit on. With Teferi, it is very good, but it, it it's very limited to what kind of decks you can play it in with it being blue-white and you know a five-mana Planeswalker, so you're not really looking at a four-of kind of anywhere. Sure, it could be in some band decks or, or like maybe some mid-range type decks also, but you know, this is not a $40 card moving forward, especially how you mentioned how much this set is going to be opened. With yeah. Lyra Dawn... Go ahead. Well, just on the topic of Teferi, um, the blue-white approach deck that finished in third at the Classic uh, in Atlanta was only running a single copy. And a single copy Planeswalker, definitely not going to hold over 40. If you can convince me that one or two of the archetypes are going to be enduring and they're going to run three to four copies, then we can have that conversation. He reminds me a little of Benzer, Shaper Savant, who like had places in standard and he was useful at times, but he was never a four of and like any deck that tried to build around him never really got there. Uh, and he was fun and casuals enjoyed it, but it wasn't a, wasn't a staple. I think Teferi is going to be a lot better than that. It's a lot closer to Gideon Ooh. Alive Zendikar than that. Um, most everybody that played the card this weekend was just saying that it was broken and incredibly good, uh, including BCW teammate. Uh, Brent DeCandio tweeting that out. Um, also, uh, some players playing in the PTQ online were saying that they were playing it as well. It is an incredibly good Planeswalker, but it, you know, five mana and everything. I expect it to be much more than a one of like that, that one deck from the classic. I expect it to be probably, you know, like a three of. Right. And to be clear, the, the thing that makes it so good is that it's tap out control, right? Like it lets you basically cast it as though it's a three drop but on turn five where you're leaving mana up via the two lands that you're untapping so that you, you get this planeswalker in the battlefield, you go up and he goes up in loyalty, you draw a card and you've untapped the land. So you can respond with either a removal spell or a counter spell. Yeah. Yep. That's why the untapping of the lands is just incredibly valuable. So yeah, basically costs three mana the first turn. And then after that you have like two extra mana every turn. It's, 
it's kind of like playing an hour of promise for you know five mana you get two extra mana every turn except for you have this planeswalker that right. also just draws you a card every turn right and then and then his his down tick is a defensive ability which has traditionally been one of the hallmarks of a good planeswalker yep and it can it could deal with any permanent so it can deal with enchantments artifacts planeswalkers it can it can get rid of any plane any uh, permanent right and it, and this is in a world where chandra uh Torch of Defiance is no longer as good because you can't target uh, opposing planeswalkers, but Teferi can handle them. Right, and so one of the, one of the uh, things that's holding back Teferi right now is whenever it does, whenever you play it and minus, it goes down to one loyalty, which is not very much. And so one big thing that's holding it back right now is Walking Ballista being everywhere, um, being able to just kind of pick it off. But is is Goblin Chain Whirler also a consideration there? Um, yeah, yeah, I guess Goblin Chain Whirler would be also. I guess I. It, you know, haven't experienced as much as the of the red versus blue white, but yeah, no, that's that's a real card as well. They could also just uh, pick it off right away. I have heard uh, from some buddies that Chain Whirler was surprisingly good for them. Yep, yep, that card's just incredibly strong. That's that's definitely uh, all all of the uh, the monocolored you know three drops from the set. They're all very very strong. So let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, Lyra Dawnbringer or Lyra Dawnbringer, um, $35. She made a big move this weekend. <clears throat> she was a card that uh, I was talking with Cedric uh, about uh, on the weekend. Um, it was one of his picks to make a big move. And here we are today with uh, a lot of supply drained out of the marketplace and posting up almost neck and neck with Karn and Teferi. Yeah, you're seeing Lyra kind of everywhere. Um, Mardu Vehicles has it in the sideboard. The like or like the black white vehicle decks also just have it in the sideboard. You see the blue white flash deck becoming very popular as just like a, a fun style that people like to play, um, playing on their opponent's end step. Where Lyra Dawnbringer is a big part of that deck, and then also it's a big player in the control decks coming out of the sideboard as well. Now, I don't like the prospects of this card moving uh, forward too much. Like this isn't like immediately like the next couple of days is not going to be good or something, but it is a, the type of card that the metagame can easily adapt to because it is just a five mana five five that, you know, dies to removal spells. So um, once the metagame starts adapting to Lyra and everybody getting used to other people playing Lyra's and making sure that they have answers post board, like I'm sure like week one, some people don't leave any answers for Lyra post board in their con- like playing against control decks and stuff like that. Once once people start uh, learning to kind of play around the, the card more, its value will go down. Is is part of its value hinging upon how well Mono Red is doing in the format since it's one of the major walls that shuts that deck down? Yep. Yep. Um, and Mono Red being a very popular week one format. Also, the Mono Red decks have not adapted to it by playing Fight with Fire. Uh, that's that's a card that they should just be playing that they're not, or at least not all of them are, um, to be answering Lyra. And once they start figuring that out and start and people start putting Fight with Fire in their red sideboards to deal with Lyra, then, you know, again, it will kind of go down in value. Right, that, that's the three mana sorcery from Dominaria that just deals five to target creature, but if it's kicked, you can do 10 damage divided amongst any number of targets. Oh, yeah. I had, <laughs> I had an opponent kick that against me this weekend. No way. Yeah, they were very dead and they died easily the next turn, but they just wanted to do it. To to me. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a scary spell to be cast at full kicker value. Yeah. All right, so next on the list, we've got uh, Mox Amber. Uh, a card which really seems to have divided the community. Nobody seems quite sure how good this card is. What's your take so far? <laughs> Everyone is sure. We just don't know who's right. 
that's that's yeah that's a good way to put it yeah everybody like yeah everybody has a, a hot opinion about mox amber i um i uh played so i played mox amber in modern well i didn't really ross Merriam did while he was over at my house where while we were streaming and he went 5-0 with it in a mono white deck and there's plenty of people afterwards that just want to just immediately claim mox amber is just not pl- playable at all in modern which doesn't make a lot of sense but basically yeah, I, I, I watched that stream and the turn where he had thalia out on turn one was pretty disgusting yeah like kithian plus thalia on turn one yeah like double yeah. mocks <laughs> like yeah good luck um i think and gross. i think we did like uh hero blade hold on turn two after double mocks i think if i remember correctly as well um but it's not an easy card to build around and especially in standard it, it's not i tried at first it was the first thing that i tried when i was trying to make a deck for this weekend was trying to make a mox amber deck i wasn't playing enough lands i was relying on mox amber too much for that and i just kind of went away from it without continuing but it's a t- it's a tough one i would kind of say this is kind of like the the bit the bitcoin card you know it's high risk high reward that like if yeah. it does make out if it does work out all the all the people that like were like rewarded by it and just like you know the that spec on it are just going to be insufferable to deal with it's gonna be just like that yeah please don't say that word on this cast because uh you invite <laughs> insane people to talk to us and we just like to avoid that <laughs> part of that's part of that's our fault anyway for talking about bitcoin for two months in the fall <laughs> yeah. um, so here's here's my take on mox amber is that i flagged it right away um that that play that ross made was going to happen when you guys were streaming remember i chimed in mm-hmm. um with with the tweet so i you know a lot of people a lot of people saw that coming but but my take on the mox amber has always been that i hope and believe it will not be good enough now for modern so that it has plenty of time to go downhill in the summertime and foils get real cheap and then the thing about Mox Amber, the thing that's holding it back is the preponderance of legends in any given format that you can get out on turns one or two because after that, it doesn't really matter anymore. So given enough time as a format gets bigger and bigger and bigger, um, the card has to get better and better. And people will find ways to make use of it in EDH for sure because the entire format is built around legendary permanence. Um, so, you know, by all means, be bad for now, Mox Amber. <laughs> Now, that makes a lot of sense, James. Uh, that's a, that's a good call. I do think Mox Amber is just on the way down right now. I do think that's where it's headed right now. Um, like I said, it's a hard card to build around. And that does make sense. There are just going to be more and more legendary creatures and Planeswalkers printed at one and two mana. I mean, not really Planeswalkers. Uh, you get the point. But yeah, and it should just be better going forward. So now, I will I will say I'm a Mox Amber advocate. Am I still are you still getting audio problems with me, by the way? A little bit of roboting. Yeah. Mm, all right, well, I'll keep this short. I was a fan of Mox Amber as well, still am, but I'll play the devil's advocate and say modern's already huge, and it's really unlikely that more legendary creatures is what it will require. Well, keep in mind, I think we got Dominaria has something like, I can't remember the exact figure, but it's either 30 or 35% of all legends ever printed are in Dominaria. It's a, it's a huge what? number. Really? It's and that can't possibly yeah. be true. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll find the stat for you guys and, and throw your way. But even if let, even if I backtrack that to twenty, and I'm pretty sure that's wrong, I'm almost certain it was in the it was thirty plus. Well, Kamigawa um, was all legendary creatures as well. Yeah, it's a big chunk of them too. But between the two, they they're like sixty percent of them, and then Legends is the other one. 
Um, but most sets only have a small handful. And keep in mind, the legends in this set go mythic, rare, and uncommon. There's a, there's a bunch of them. So what and what this set overall signals to me is a is a understanding within wizards that as we talked about a few months ago um the real moder- the real master set they were supposed to release was EDH masters because casual EDH brawl is where the action's at the future of magic is as much casual uh, fun as it is competitive and i expect to see even more legendary creatures as time goes on um, a, a heightened amount because they're leaning into the whole EDH ascendant thing. So, uh, th- I mean, a deck similar to Ross's went 5-0 in a modern league today, um, running four Aether Vial, two Smuggler's Copter, three Mox Amber, four Path to Exile, the usual creature suite with not much variation. They did have a Shalai Voice of Plenty in there. Okay, that's nice. That's nice. So they were just mono-white as well? Yep. Okay. Yep, yep. Because I could also see this being a, a red-white shell to be able to fit like Eidolon... And and trying to cast that early, uh, you know, off of like a Zergo or something. Like a turn one Eidolon of the Great Revel kind of seems unbeatable. <laughs> I hate that card. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so moving right along. Uh, History of Banalia. Um, I think this is a card that was widely underestimated when it was first revealed. Um, how did you feel like it was performing in standard this weekend, Todd? Yeah, so I did not see it very much this weekend, but the Thursday before the open, I was seeing it everywhere online and it looks like it's kind of been online a lot still. looks like people hadn't quite had it in their open decks yet. Um, as you know, the paper metagame is always a little behind the online metagame. And, uh, this is a card that I think is incredibly strong. This is out of, um, out of these you know, being at $20 right now, I think this is a lot better buy than Mox Amber or Lyra or Teferi. Um, this is a card that I could see being like a, a big part of like the next wave of of uh, standard and being a big part of the Pro Tour. I think it's incredibly strong. It's definitely one that I uh, overlooked at first too when just kind of going through the the spoilers. What struck me about this card is that it sets a specific pace and tempo for the format because any deck that can play it out on either turn two or turn three and follow up with another one the turn after has set a specific clock on the board that must be dealt with. Yeah, they're so good in multiples. That's also another thing. You know, they're not legendary. So playing a history banalia on turn three. Uh, and then playing another one on turn four means that the next turn you're swinging for 12 and then the next turn 16 with just big tokens. And you're not really putting much um, like you're not putting much into it. Like you just have a two card, uh, two cards that you're just putting into it. And then you also have like the mana up to be able to use it. Removal, interact with your opponents. It's a really good card. I've also seen it a ton in the control decks to be able to bring in those like the innovation there, like the blue eye control decks to bring in post board when people take out their removal. You bring in history banalias and also in the the other control matchups, they everybody leaves an essence scatter to deal with like the torrential gear hulks that's so important, but you can't essence scatter a history banalia. And so that's pretty nice. And it's nice that the, those tokens are with vigilance because then you can play that more defensive role with the card if you want to. Um, if you've got a shot to break through an attack, you get to do that basically for free and you're still going to be back on defense um, when the next turn rolls around. Yep, yep. Yeah, no, it's it's incredibly strong. It's definitely the card that I I really want to play this weekend in Standard. I want to try to find... I think it works really well with Karn also um, to just kind of make multiple... Uh, 
creatures that help protect Karn that can be both aggressive and defensive. And it kind of like gets your opponent like having to worry about this history of Benalia and then your Karn is more free. I think they they work really well together. And it's nice that it... I'm I'm just going to tell you, uh, Todd uh, is very different on this card than I was. I I mean, it looked fine, but you are... uh, You're the reason... The reason we have you on, it's because I went with this and went, eh, and I still kind of am. Uh, but I mean, you're saying that it's almost a buy at 20, which to me is wild. Like, I didn't think it was anywhere near that good. Yeah, no, I, I really do think so. I actually just bought them before this weekend at 20 myself, uh, and I didn't even play them this weekend. But um, I, I do think it's it's very good and is going to be like, I, I, I think it's its ceiling is going to be over 20. Um, you know, it may be short lived ceiling, but I think this is a $30 card at some point, like maybe during pro tour weekend. Yeah, I could see, I could see 20 to 30 being one of the more, uh, profitable potential moves out of this top 10 list for standard for sure. Mm-hmm. It's, it's yeah. nice that in the, in the decks, um, that are running it on the aggro side where they have Gideon, of the trials and Karn Scion of Urza and they're running heart of Kieran. Um, they can crew, the uh, various vehicles in that deck again because they may might have attacked but they have vigilance so that they can crew defensively um, on the return that's a nice little interaction yep yep yeah no it's just it's just much better than i originally thought as well i I did not um, picture it being this good but then just basically playing against it a lot online the thursday before the open it was like playing against decks with history and Karn, I was just thinking, man, what they're doing is a whole lot better than what I'm doing with my Soltai deck. And it's the reason this card is, is the reason why I played multiple golden demises in my main deck uh, this past weekend. I was very scared of it. Right. We're giving people a lot of credit for having discovered that card already. <laughs> yeah. And then I did not play against it at all over the whole weekend. And I was very happy. <laughs> all right. So let, now let's talk about a card that hasn't really shown much, uh, shown up much uh, at all, at least not at the top tables, I don't think. Uh, Steel Leaf Champion, I, I think I saw on early rounds at the team tournament, but I don't remember seeing it towards the end. Did you have a take on that one? Yeah. Um, the green decks are, you know, like they're also pretty easy to build. I know uh, Collins Mullen was playing uh, green splashing blue for like negates and stuff like that out of the sideboard, um, like a mono green deck. Um, it is an incredibly strong card and it is like it's very scary to like the second turn of the game have a 5-4 out. They can't block it. Personally, with my Soltai deck, I really struggled against these Steel Leaf Champion decks. Um, I'm glad that they weren't doing as well. The biggest problem that they have right now is beating the control decks with the fumigates and the settle the wreckages and like the early removal because they don't have a ton of card advantage. Um, but there, there is definitely something there to the green shell. Um, it's not, you know, at a rare for $5, I think that's kind of around the ceiling. You know, it will be a player in the metagame, not a huge part, um, but it is also just a, it's going to be a four of and all of those, you know, any kind of like mono green deck. Um, I, th- I expect this just to be a three to five dollar card for a while. That's yeah. that's kind of where I'd put it too. You know, those green, the the creatures that define green decks in a format usually still don't manage to climb above five or six dollars. Like eight or ten, maybe on a rare if it's like a tier one green deck for all standard. But we've seen this time and time again where those just don't really have the the pull to stick around. Yeah, if you if you want your standard rare green card to get up over 10 is probably a mana producer that shows up in multiple decks like a sylvan caryatid or something like right. that 
Yeah. Of course, their crew fix we saw was like 15 or 20 sure. at one point. But yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. really wide open or a well open set. And it's not going to like those were defining cards and standards. Steel Leaf Champions, not quite there. All right. How about uh, Sulfur Falls and this whole land cycle, I guess, is is really what we're talking about. These these lands, how how critical are they to the format right now? Are, are a, a lot of copies being run? Yeah, lots. Of, yep. Lots of copies everywhere. Um, basically, any like, you know, two color black decks playing the four isolated chapel, the, you know, blue red decks playing all those. I, I do think that these are these are just solid pickups for um, for standard if you want to play them and everything. I was actually pretty surprised at how low the prices were in uh, in general on just this whole cycle. I actually uh, just going through uh, Star City Games here, I actually sold my old copies of like Sulphur Falls and stuff to them at buy list price and then bought the new ones and saved money. Nice. So, yeah, like it was just actually it was actually kind of like, oh, I'll just sell the old ones and pick up the new ones. And yeah, so I, I was surprised that, that I was able to do that, you know, so I was surprised at how low they they were priced. But um, no, they're they're definitely important. They're definitely very good. Uh, you know, just like we've seen from the the other Czech lands for years. Um, yeah, they're they're going to be crucial. I'm actually more interested in Sulphur Fall, Falls' role in modern. Um, to be honest, where it it several of the blue red decks um often run it as a three or a four of, and the foils are going to get real cheap this summer and probably set up some good deals. That's a good point. And also, um, another reason why these are probably a good buy in the summer is if brawl does continue to take off if they finally ban brawl and then people really start playing the format like these are just lands that everybody's going to have you know one extra copies for for their different decks yeah and and in the fall when the dual lands from kaladesh rotate depending on what's in the fall set these may be absolutely mission critical at which point they could easily end up being ten dollar cards you can buy list yeah yep very very true all right, so we talked a little bit about it already. Goblin Chain Whirler, um, super impressive three drop, three three first strike for three, deals one damage to all creatures and planeswalkers on the opposing side of the board. Pretty nasty. Oh yeah, this is this is an awesome card. This is a card is good enough to see play in not only just mono red decks. I think I think you can play, you know, red splashing other colors and you know play two color decks and still play Chain Whirler because this card is just so good. Um, wow yeah and you know right now it's working well with soul scar mage um i believe yeah that's going to rotate out in the fall soul scar mage says all your non-combat damage puts negative one or negative negative counters on their uh creatures gives them wither yeah yep gives them wither with there for people that have played longer than two years todd yeah well <laughs> sorry wait when did rise come out five years <laughs> <laughs> which is yeah. pretty gross when you have first strike since you're reducing the size of the combatant before it even gets to you Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, right. Goblin Chain Whirler is definitely one, like one of the best cards in the set. Um, Jim Davis thought it was like the best card in the set right away. Um, it's this is this is going to be a standard player for the whole time. It's it's in standard, um, but still, it's not going to be like Goblin Rabble Master big, um, and it's not you know, and it is in a a big set for supply wise. So five dollars is still going to be probably around the price that it gets to. I it's not sure it's going to get to ten. Yeah, I think this is, again, one of these things where it could spike on the floor at the Pro Tour mm-hmm. to 10 or $12 or even 15 but then it's, you know, beyond that point going to start receding quite quickly. A lot of this has to do more with the supply patterns than it does how good these cards are. Right. 
Um, so interestingly, the other, the compatriot on the white side, Benelish Marshall, which makes all your knights bigger, well, actually all your creatures bigger, um, is a 3-3 for 3 that uh, is a walking crusade, and it's only 250. Um, do you see it as as being a card that we're going to see a lot of in the white decks, or do you think the white decks are going to be around in a few months? Yeah, uh, de- the white decks will definitely be around in a few months. This is definitely going to be another card we'll see a lot of. I think this is just right on the same level as Steel Leaf Champion and Goblin Chain Whirler. Uh, maybe just a tiny bit below, not even really. I, I think this is just also just another $5 card. Um, so there's not like a whole lot to gain there from like specking on these and then, you know, going through all the fees and everything. But um, I think this works incredibly well with uh, History Banalia that we talked about before. And it also crews vehicles well. It makes your other creatures crew vehicles better, uh, you know, specifically Hardy Kieran. This is going to be definitely a major player in standard. Um, it hasn't been as much right away because the green deck is very easy to build. The red deck was already around and also very easy to build. The white deck's not quite as easy to build. And so, you know, it's not, we haven't really seen it as much week one, but this card is just as good as the other two. And I think it's better than Steel Leaf Champion. And I think we'll see more standard play than Steel Leaf Champion overall. Um, but it, I think it's right up there with Goblin Chain Whirler. I saw a lot of, um, Banalish Marshall and these sort of white aggro decks in general in the standard PTQ that was online uh, Sunday or yesterday um, wasn't as represented in the Star City event, but all over Moto. And uh, I kind of took note of how much Banalish Marshall was in there. Um, and, you know, if History Banali is that strong, that's that's gives you a lot of options on three. Right. Uh, and a lot of overall power in your deck. So that's at 250. That's interesting, given that it seems like it could be five or six bucks pretty easily. Yep, yep. And three is kind of a weaker part point on the curve in standard right now. So it's it's definitely a welcome card there. Uh, yeah, this this could very easily be like I could see this being a $10 card, you know, like just like I could see Chain Whirler. It's pretty hard to see Steel Leaf Champion being a $10 card, but this one could could get there. And I, I think Chain Whirler and, and Marshall, uh, their destinies are linked because Chain Whirler is so good against the white deck if it doesn't have the extra point of toughness, right? So... The, the marshal's value in the field is dependent on how many chain whirlers are coming down against it. And well, also Benelish Marshall is very good against uh, the black knight, knight of malice to help, right. to help get your uh, white creatures over that. Cause that's first strike. So basically just any first strike type creature. It's very good against golden demise uh, to make your knights not, not die to golden demise. Uh, I've, uh, I, I do not like playing against this card because <laughs> I cannot use my golden demise very well. But it's right. just it's just a very strong card in combat, which we kind of talked about earlier. Is the sets kind of building around combat? So, Golden Demise is a card that may, people may not be familiar with. That's a sorcery for one two black. Uh, all creatures get minus two minus two until end of turn. If you have the city's blessing, instead uh, only the opponent's creatures get minus two minus two. So you've been, you're playing this in the Sultai control shell. Yep, it's the new infest for people that have been playing longer than five years. Sure. <laughs> All right. So the final card on my list for standard is one that showed up nowhere this weekend, um, but that Patrick Chapin made a huge deal about on the top level podcast just recently, um, claiming that Lich's mastery was going to break the format. You have any thoughts on that, Todd? Um, I don't think it's going to break the format, but this is Lich's mastery is the kind of card that um, I'm not sure it's good enough if you just kind of build around it and like make like a dedicated Lich's mastery deck, I just don't know if that's actually even good enough for standard. Um, 
the ones I've played against. They're they're fine, but you know we have a format with duresses and negates and stuff like that. What I really like it as is actually just more of a sideboard card in decks like the black white vampire deck that post board can just that also that already has a lot of like life gain um built into it i think just kind of playing a bunch of bad life gain cards is not really the way to go but when you just have a when you don't have to work for the life gain and you're playing a bunch of like lifelink creatures and stuff like that um i think it's a very powerful option there in a sideboard um something like that so i think i think you want a deck like that um now you know we'll we'll see maybe there is some combo deck that you know i don't really know of now but that's where i would really be looking at for lich's mastery to take advantage of it uh right now as somebody who lived through both necropotence and yogmoth's bargain decks um this thing definitely reeks like potential um and for those that aren't familiar with the card lich's mastery is a legendary enchantment three and three black hex proof you can't lose the game Whenever you gain life, you draw that many cards. Whenever you lose life, for each one life you lost, exile a permanent you control or a card from your hand or graveyard. And eventually, if they do enough damage to you, you have to sack the mastery, and then you die. Um, now, there are a bunch of different ways that this is going to get comboed with, um, but I'm, I'm, my assumption thus far has been that I'm going to see more of this in play in EDH and funky combo decks than I am in Standard or Modern. Yep, I could see that. There's also just other ways to kind of deal with this if it does become a big part of the metagame to kind of keep keep it down. Like stuff like River's Rebuke, just bounce it and then you lose the game. Because if it just leaves the battlefield, you lose and stuff like that. that um, that's kind of, I'm sorry, so, that, that's kind of what I was thinking is it seems like a card that could be very, you could have a very powerful deck built around it, but at the same time, it's very answerable. Like you could spike a GP with it, but if it ever became a thing, people are going to know how to show up and deal with this the next weekend. Cause they're just going to like fireball you for four be like, Oh, whoops. Like that, that sucks a lot of wind out of its sails. Right. I'd also be a lot. I'd also be a lot more interested in this if it was a mythic, not a true, rule. true. So I'm, I'm, this is a car. This is going to be a pet card of mine this summer, um, but I'm going to buy it at like 40 cents. All right. All right. <laughs> and it's going to go in the same pile as uh, aggressive mining um, and, <laughs> and live in the shadows of my closet for five years. <laughs> All right. So moving on to modern, um, I think we could probably agree that the most obvious inclusion into the modern format is damping sphere. Absolutely. Um, just such a good answer out of sideboards. It, it look, really looks like it was... <laughs> custom designed to help uh provide a little bit more balance and modern against um the decks that it's good against uh notably tron and storm yes yep and also the new kci deck that's picking up in a lot of popularity as well uh perfect there same with like amulet titan so both of the the two decks that finished first and second that were in the finals of the last grand prix um it's very good against both of those decks as well besides storm and tron this is definitely a card that um, I do expect to see in people's sideboards, and it's the kind of card they'll just kind of be randomly throughout sideboards, you know. Um, but overall, it's it's not like a, a card that I, I think is nearly cheap enough to be specking on at all right now. Even foils at 15, when we saw like Grafdigger's Cage be seeing a lot of play, and it was a rare, and it had been out for four years, it was still only like a $20 foil. Um, so this is not a card 
that uh, I particularly want to spec on at all. Yeah, sideboard cards scare me, period. Um, they, ne- they never seem to generate the kind of appreciation that is relevant unless they end up being, you know, cards that are freshly activated by some new thing happening in the format and they were from a very old modern set that doesn't have a lot of supply. Uh, you know, for, for a long time, there was this, the popular wisdom was don't buy sideboard cards, buy main deck cards. Um, because for exactly those reasons, you just generally played them less uh, and they were a little more uh, fleeting than main deck strategies. But I feel like we saw a change in that a couple years ago, two years ago, maybe. And there were a lot of sideboard cards that suddenly started moving in price because they were just so prevalent that like every green deck, for instance, had like obstinate Bailoth in the sideboard. Like it didn't matter what your green deck was in modern. You played obstinate Bailoth um, because it was so useful. And there were several others too. I think Chalice of the Void before it became essentially a, a main deck staple. It had already moved to the sideboard card. Well, the, the, um, the two that come to mind most obviously in white are Stony Silence and Rest in Peace, right? Right, right. Exactly, exactly. Which are perfect examples. So I'm not telling you guys to run out and buy Damping Spheres or anything. Um, but, you know, if it hates on a wide variety of decks in both modern and legacy, you're not going to see the price go nuts today. But I do think given two or three years, it could it could appreciate up to $10 just because everyone will need to own a playset if you are playing either of those formats. Yeah, I could I could see like in, you know, two, three, four years, the price appreciating back up to what the current price is right now, you know, if it's still seeing wide play. But that's that's where I kind of see like the ceiling is. I think the play, sure. I think the play on damping sphere is Russian foils if you can get them at a good price because the thing about Russian cards is they never get reprinted. So um, this card's going to be around for a long time. It's useful in multiple formats. It's going to be a fixture, and you know, it's not something you would want to try to get ten of or twenty of, even if you even could. There's only two for sale on all of eBay right now. Um, but I certainly wouldn't mind having a little playset to stash away and sell to some high roller in modern like a year or two down the road. Sure. Yeah. The foils are, foils are rough. Star city's got them at, I think, wait, star city, they're yeah. four and 30. Yeah. <laughs> Way too high. So not getting on that yet. No. All right. So we talked a little bit, a bit, bit about Karn and modern already. Um, foils are at 80 bucks, regular cards over 40. Um, that's definitely a wait and see from a modern perspective. Yeah. Um, but if you use something like a Liliana of the Veil or a Liliana of the Last Hope as a model, then if the foils were to get down into the $40 to $50 range at peak supply, then there might be an opportunity that opens up to uh, pick them up and ride them up to 100 Yeah, I, I could definitely see this being a $100 foil. I think $40 foils are a pretty easy pickup. Um, but like right now, even on Star City, this this card's a fifty dollar card right now. I you know bought them at forty five on the weekend. Um, so like that eighty is not that far off from the regular price right now. Um, you know, obviously it's not really quite a buy, but this is like we saw with Snapcaster, Liliana, the cards that were multi format all stars that people like buying their foils for for those older formats. And we saw both of those foils being in the one to two hundred dollar range, and I could see Karn being a one to two hundred dollar foil. Uh, in the not too distant future. Yeah, certainly. I would say I will tell you I am uh, more ex- more eager than I would have expected myself to be for foil carns, even at eighty dollars. Like I'm looking at eighty bucks ago. Hmm. I, I could see that. I could see that play because like 
how much can you really miss by? Right. I, I think you I think you wait for the coup, coupons on eBay slash summer sale to get your 25% discount and then you confidently move in on a few sets and wait to see how things develop. The um, I think you're going to get multiple buying opportunities through late spring and through summer. Um, and again, I think I would revert back to this Russian foil thing, right? Like instead of buying four of the regular foil, get one or two of the Russian foils, pick them off where, where they pop up. It's not very hard to drain that supply. And that card, that version probably ends up as a three or $400 card down the road. Yep. But still, uh, summer lulls hit, this gets down to like 60 bucks, you know, 50 for sure. Even 60. I, I kind of like that as a buy there. Yeah. 50 bucks for um, foil cards. I'm, I'm in. Yeah. I'm in on that. Absolutely. <laughs> so Teferi, Hero of Dominaria for modern, Todd. Mm, well, okay. So I wouldn't have thought too much of it, but, you know, kind of had my mind change a little bit this weekend with Benjamin Nikolic, who is, you know, maybe the Jeskai master on the SCG tour, um, you know, winning an open earlier in the year with Jeskai. And he's just been on the top of the leaderboard for the year. Uh, overall playing the deck a lot. He played Teferi in his modern deck this weekend over Jace the Mind Sculptor, and he thought that it was a better card for the deck than Jace the Mind Sculptor. And that's, again, because he gets to... With Jace, you tap out and you're tapped. Mm -hmm. With Teferi, you have counter magic up or answers, right? Yep, yep. You get the So you get the two untapped land every single turn, which is just huge. You get to sometimes untap your search for Escanta in the very late game uh, whenever that flips. And also it just starts at a lot high, a higher loyalty. You know, it wasn't like you had, you didn't have to like plus it right away to not get bolted. And the plus like didn't do a whole lot. You know, like when you plus to fairy, you're drawing a card right away and it's not going to get bolted and you're getting your two mana. So he, he was actually very happy with the card in the deck. And, and let us not, let us not forget that the ultimate is you get an emblem with whenever you draw a card, exile target permanent and opponent controls. Yeah, that's, um, that's pretty un, un yeah, that's, that's very hard to beat that, just like it's hard to beat Jace's ultimate. That's hard to beat that one. And so those foils are currently $70. Um, I think I feel the same way about these as I do about Karn. I'm less confident in his modern play being prominent than I am in him slotting right into my Attracts a Super Friends deck for EDH. Um, because I can get his ultimate off a of doubling season right away, um, that means that he's an auto-include there. So the again, foils and Russian foils in particular uh, are definitely on my radar. Yep, and even though even though uh, Ben was playing Teferi as a one of in the Jeskai deck, I kind of feel like it's right around there, like a one of in to maybe a two of in like Jeskai Blue Eye Control stuff like that. So so still, this is basically an incredibly good standard card, but that's kind of you know its ceiling. You know, it does have some EDH appeal, but uh, this is something that I that I think like this is much better to wait till like rotation because um, it won't go down too much right away even with it opened up a lot just because how good it is in, in standard but um, like this is you know probably a future $10 card uh, you know going towards rotation and stuff sure I mean part of the problem is that in modern decks can just be winning against you on turn four he's still a five drop even if he's untapping the lands after the fact so one of the things I'm curious about is whether he's actually supposed to be in a noble hierarch deck well, the instant speed interaction is incredibly good with Teferi. So it is very good there because, you know, when you're playing a Jeskai shell, um, all your other cards are lightning bolts and paths and lightning helixes. And so even though, you know, sure, decks can kill you on turn four, but your entire deck is designed to not die on turn four and interact with the opponent and stay alive. And so it does help you just kind of turn the corner faster by 
uh, getting an engine to, to start drawing an extra card every turn while having the extra mana to cast uh, your spells and, and start double, triple spelling and, and turn the corner. What about some kind of weird Bant shell that's using like Geist of St. Traft or Spell Quellers or something? Uh, maybe. I mean, yeah. I mean, <laughs> heck, you can do basically anything in modern, you know? <laughs> I don't know if that would be like this, this a winning is... formula, but yeah, I mean, you, you can do anything you want to 5 a league. <laughs> It, it's not it's not a set review if Todd doesn't like knock something out of the sky. Um good and hard. So <laughs> my favorite are when you pitch him your it, deck ideas and he tries very politely not to tell you that it's absolute he's garbage. <laughs> yes, he's very polite. But but keep in mind he also said Dire Fleet Daredevil was was garbage and it just won a legacy. <laughs> so and that was my pick for that set. They got they got laughed out of the room. So Mox Amber in modern. Uh, we talked about this already. I uh, don't like the foils at 50. I want to see it crash and burn and people call it the worst card ever and then buy a bunch. Because yeah. <laughs> uh, long term, that card, every it's got mocks in the word. It's, it's going to get played at some point. Yeah, I could see this card going as low as like $5, honestly, um, like during the during the summer months because um, it is, you know, hard, hard to, to uh, build. And I, I don't think it's going to be like a, a splash and standard modern anything right now. And I don't really see it. And then, you know, I don't see it like making a breakout at the pro tour at all. So I could see like after the pro tour, people just being really low on the card. And then over time, uh, people, you know, figuring it out and and trying it some more and and everything. So, yeah, this is definitely a card to buy in later. One of the things I love about Europe is that if it's not a car, if the card is not relevant in the competitor competitive scene, it the value will be another 30 or 40% below whatever it is on TCG. So by all means fall flat on your face, Mox Amber and be ultra cheap and give me $14 foils in Europe. Oh, that'd be so good. All right. Skirk prospector. I don't think this is going to make us any money, but I am curious whether you think goblins is a deck now in modern. Nope. This isn't nope, enough. Not at all. Done. There you go. That's, all right. That's it. Yeah, I, right I'm, I'm curious. I'm curious why you say that because this strikes me as a an important piece of a goblin strategy doing well. I, I think that the 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 eight whack decks are just kind of like the better goblin type decks um, that you know can play goblin grenades and all that kind of stuff. Now I know Jim Davis has been has made the uh, dirty kitty deck with the fecundity with this yeah and yeah, everything yeah. and i know he's excited about that deck i don't know if that's like a deck you'd want to bring to a tournament or anything i think that's what he's uh he was actually just here in town uh recording a versus series for tomorrow and i think that's what he's writing about for the week i was just talking just had dinner with him um so yeah, i know he's definitely excited about it but i'm i'm skeptical uh i haven't seen it in action at all so i guess i'm not the most well informed but I am very, very skeptical. It, it's, it's, I, I it's have plays similar to 8 I think. Like, it's generally the same concept. It just gives you a mana engine to go off. All, well, it's, I, I would. It, it's a little different. It actually plays a lot like Storm because it basically just um, plays a bunch of goblins and because the Storm count gets so high, it goes off with... Uh, sorry, what's the sorcery for <laughs> three in a row? Thank you. No, not not grape shot. Oh, um, some flames. No, the one that makes goblins. Empty oh, the empty the warrants. Two goblins right. per storm gun. Okay. Yeah, it it finishes with empty the warrants and does all sorts of busted stuff. However, you you do need to find fecundity, <laughs> and you are 
Uh, I think that until the formula for pulling the fecundity out of the deck in a green red deck is uh, nailed down, the variability on the variance on the deck is going to be very high. And there's damping sphere. Well, boom. I, yes. You know, I think I think the deck probably plays somewhere as a cross between storm and eight whack because really eight whack is similar to storm anyways, right? It's like cast seven spells in a turn and win. <laughs> it's, it's essentially what they're shooting for. Mm-hmm. Um, and you might, I mean, you also might be able to just go off without fecundity, at least like flood the board on turn two and be like, okay, I have a bunch of creatures. You've got one turn to deal with that type of thing. But, uh, well, all right, I, I, you know, not like I have a horse in this race. I'm just surprised to hear Todd, uh, not think Skirk prospect, Spectre can do anything in modern. Well, it was interesting when it got revealed because Goblin Piledriver went up on buy list right away. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not even convinced that Pro Blue is is good in the way that it was when Piledriver was a big deal. Nope, probably not. Um, all right, so how about the Antiquities War? Okay, this is a card I'm actually very excited about. Um, this is one that, again, is going to be a tough thing to build around and you're not going to just have like Antiquities War decks right away. But I could definitely see this being... Um, or like just, you know, making a big impact, uh, on the, on modern, honestly, uh, this is one. So this is the three in a blue saga, both the first and second chapter. Say, look at the top five cards of your library. You may reveal an artifact card from among them and put it into your hand, put the rest on the bottom of your library. And then the third one is the, all your artifacts you control become artifact creatures with base power and toughness five, five until end of turn. So with this, like it's basically the first two chapters are basically like ancient stirrings, back to back, which we know how good that card is. But that's, that's of course just a single mana, and then just it can just win out of nowhere with just making all your creatures five fives. Like if you just have you know six artifacts on the battlefield, that's thirty damage that you're swinging in. And so I could see uh, defensive artifact decks playing this. I could also see this being like a sideboard card for affinity against Stony Silence decks. Whenever their artifacts don't do anything, I could see them doing something like this. Um, for Lantern to to play this, that's possible. But you know, they obviously don't really want to have Lantern. Uh, not um, they really don't want to have Ensnaring Bridge in play. Uh, obviously, yeah. But this is definitely a card that I'd have my eye on if it gets you know to closer towards the bulk range uh, to snap up for modern. I did see a couple of people playing it in standard this weekend too, and really liking it in uh, in standard decks. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think this card's very strong. Yeah, I think. I mean, it tutors twice and then builds an army. Can't be that yeah. bad. Yeah, it does a whole lot. I mean, four you have to do a lot for four mana, but this this certainly gets there. Well, and the and the and in the decks that want it, they're all running Mox Opal, so it costs three mana. True. Maybe Mox mm-hmm. Amber. So I mean. At some point, they print, I think, like a two-drop or a one-drop artifact creature that can suck a count, like get a counter on this thing faster or something. Um, because we have, I sold foil uh, mirror conduits, the one that lets you uh, remove saga counters and make creatures bigger. Um, but that's not what you're looking to do here. This one you want to accelerate, get to the five fives. Yeah. Well, there's also, I mean, there's just stuff like contagion clasp. Doesn't that just like let you proliferate? You can like. Yeah, you can, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can do stuff like that as well. I think I saw Conley Conley Woods was running a brew that was using proliferate mechanics to get this going faster. Yeah, seems, I could see that. Seems very slow if your goal is to like play this on four and then trigger the trigger it on five. He had it wrapped into the Tezzeret shell that already existed. 
Um, I think Hidden Stockpile was in there. Okay. Um, and I think you could fool around with the um, Sword of the Meek combo, although I don't think that's necessarily fast enough. It feels like you just want to be z- like spraying a bunch of zero drops and then figuring out how to get this to trigger faster. Yeah, that's I mean, that's one option. Or you can do like just the complete control ro- roll, um, you know, like with bridge or with that, the like the mono, like with the regular lantern or like the mono blue uh, artifact control deck. If you all saw that from that's kind of been popping up some that's kind of like lantern, uh, but it's just mono blue. Um, I could see doing something like that and then just having a way to sacrifice like your ensnaring bridge and just having this as a win con instead of having to put like the mill rocks in your deck, you know, and just only having interaction, be able to have a lot more like pithing needle type effects and stuff, you know, other interaction for your opponent. Interesting. So, I mean, the cards at $1.50, foils are at five. If it doesn't make a big splash in standard and stays on the fringes of modern, I feel like we're going to get a nice buy in on this, at which point I want foils. Um, for a vet on the assumption that at some point in the next five years it does something in yeah, modern. I like that. There's not a huge difference between the regular price and the foil price. So yeah, this is a good foil spec uh, in a couple months. So also the foils are also backed by like Brea demand in EDH, right? Mm-hmm. Where being able to tutor up two great artifacts can set up all manner of disgusting combos. Good point. Uh, especially when you're dealing with a hundred card deck of singletons being able to dig deeper all the better. Um, all right. So the other one that was on my radar, Phyrexian scriptures. What if your black deck in modern is mostly artifact creatures anyway, or doesn't care about being, uh, destroyed. Uh, I don't, is this, is this the kind of thing that da- displaces damnation in some no, weird deck? No. I so the biggest problem with this is that your opponent gets to see it coming. So not like, so they can, you know, play around it pretty well you know like they don't like the great part about wrath effects is that you know like your opponent plays a bunch of creatures on the battlefield and before they attack you with all those creatures and before you know to kill you you can play the wrath effect and get rid of the creatures this is like they play all the creatures you have your four mana turn of hey next turn i'm gonna wrath you they attack you hold other stuff back in their hand and then you know and then you wrath them and then if you're still alive then they get to just play all their stuff they kept in their hand um and then also like one of the one of the most important decks to have a wrath effect for is affinity and this obviously does nothing there. I I can't imagine this is going to do anything in modern ever. Hmm. I had dreams of phylactery lich, but I'll keep them on the <laughs> shelf. Uh the next one though I think I I've heard more whispering about Sylvan Awakening in um Jeskai Ascendancy combo. Um, turning the lands into indestructible uh, creatures that untap each time you cast a spell while you're going off. I like that. Okay. I not really thought of that, but I, I definitely see something there. Um, yeah. And this is, this is a card that is just a powerful finisher. Like I don't, I can't imagine this is better than scape shift for just like, you know, if you want to build a Sylvan awakening deck instead of a scape shift deck, I think they're similar. Scape shift is probably better, but you know, it's similar like that, but I could definitely see it in the Jeskai ascendancy combo deck. Now that that deck is obviously incredibly fringe, but um, yeah. yeah. But is it the question is whether this card is the consistency it needed to go off without its lands being targeted? The biggest thing is that this costs three mana, and then you still have to play another spell to untap your lands. Um, 
or on top, top of your creatures and stuff. So like you're going to need to like be able to play this and play something else. So that, that's a lot of mana for that deck because they really want to go off on like turn three. Like they want to play a mana creature on one, um, you know, the ascendancy on two and, and start going off on three. I think you guys are going about this all wrong. You play this with intruder alarm. And then that is the hidden piece for intruder alarm because you intruder alarm on like turn one or on turn two. And then on turn three, you Sylvan Awakening play tap all your lands to sylvan awakening then play your land which counts as a creature coming into play and untaps all your lands and then you just keep doing that and then you wait is glimpse still legal in this format <laughs> no not glimpse uh, uh no it is not you know what i'm talking about though right <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah that's banned right so yep oh, that's, but it's okay because you're blue green so you play back there you go there's so, your so deck the- so, so this is all felt far-fetched enough. I'm convinced that we're going to get these foils at like 50 cents, which is at the point at which I will buy 20 of them. I mean, it's definitely far-fetched. That's for sure. They're, they're already at 250 and uh, headed down. So into peak supply on a set opened this heavily. There's no need to rush into this nonsense. You'll get plenty of chances to see whether somebody comes up with something. Um, this next one I saw a sexy list for. Torgar Famine Incarnate in a Goryo's Vengeance deck. Get this guy in the graveyard, Vengeance. He comes in as a 7-6 haste, attacking after he knocks down their life total by half. Yeah, yeah. And it also works well with in that deck, for the, that Esper deck with uh, Lingering Souls, where you can you know, have sack three Lingering yeah. Souls tokens to make it just a two-mana 7-6 that does that. Um, I, I think this has a little fringe application there. You know, Again, this is nothing that's going to really move the price, but... Yeah, this this could see a little little modern play there. And is Torgar is he a rare or rare. an uncommon? Rare. Yeah. So plenty plenty of room to fall before it becomes important. You don't see any role for him in standard, right? Um I I do I could see a role for him in standard. Um not exactly sure where, but I could I could see in like, you know, black white tokens deck uh to try to help end the game. There there could definitely be something in standard. Not exactly sure what yet, but um, nothing that I'm like, you know, interested too hard in specking on this card. I've seen a bunch of black rare graveyard related creatures <laughs> get specked on in foil over the years and very few of them right. have ever hit. Um, so they're almost certainly better priorities. Um, what about Tashar ancestors apostle? Um, so for modern, there's probably some kind of combo deck somewhere. In fact, I, I saw, uh, I saw someone before streaming. I didn't get to see the list. I just know they were streaming a Tashar deck that was like a five card combo that you could go off as soon as you just you know just have the other stuff in your graveyard and you play the Tashar and start going off. There's there's probably something there. I don't think it's good enough as a value creature in modern. I think the three and four mana slots are um like there's so much competition in those slots in modern and it just being a two, two and that you have to cast historic spells, which are, you know, not as prevalent in like a, a value type deck. Um, so I'm not excited there, but there could be some kind of combo that we realize, you know, in a, a year or two or something. Uh, this is not a, a card that I love there. I do think in standard, this is, this has some pretty good power level for standard. Um, I'm pretty surprised we haven't seen it show up too much um, yet, but this is a card that I could see uh, in a, you know, in the future being a pretty big player in standard. 
Am I correct in remembering that you had Renegade Rallyer in your value did, town yeah, back at one first, point? Very first uh, times I was playing, I played with Rallyer and Tarmogoyf as well. But Rallyer yeah, left yeah, your yeah, list, right? Did. Yeah. And why, why um, was that? Basically, uh, just kind of re- like at the time I wasn't playing Tireless Tracker and just kind of realized that Tireless Tracker is just like like one of the best cards ever and just should be in the deck because it just wins the game by itself. <laughs> <laughs> right. There's, and there's yeah, only so many yep. three slots. So like I already wanted Knights, Tracker, Courser, and then even like Ewit, I kind of preferred over Rallier. And so Rallier was only really the best when I was playing like Tarmogoyfs as well to get back. I think it's pretty strong there, but I didn't, I only had voice really to get back. And yeah. I, I will say that I am surprised to hear you say that Tashar isn't, really that great in modern just because it seems like it wouldn't be that hard to set it up like it seems like it would fit in something approaching a collected company strategy and i think i think a lot of people imagine that as well the problem is okay so let's say we're playing in this collected company deck and so that whenever we cast our historic spell we can get back the creatures that cost three or less that makes sense but then it's like what historic spells are you really playing in that kind of deck that's that's the problem and and like, what are you mm. playing after you play Tashar as a historic spell? So, you, Wait, like, what's are, historic? <laughs> I hear. Artifacts, legendaries, and sagas. I mean, one of the things that's interesting Gigi. is that a lot of the mo- the still banned. There, there's a bunch of colorless Eldrazi. <laughs> there's a bunch of colorless Eldrazi that are not artifacts but are colorless that don't do anything for you and are also yes. aren't legendary. So yeah, you're you're really like trying to figure out if you can get you know swords or something like if they unbanned storm stoneforge mystic would this be more interesting mm, no no <laughs> um so like i think you'd have to play it probably in like a mox amber type deck you know because that's like a like it does work incredibly well with mox amber that's why i kind of think that's probably more a, a standard play pattern but you know playing this four mana two two and expecting to untap with it in modern is, is kind of a high order um you know i can't like especially if it's something that that can get this kind of value i'm sure the opponent's going to be wanting to prioritize killing it and it's pretty easy to to die with those stats um so if that's the case you're going to really want to play it and then also play a historic spell the same turn so that means you're gonna have to be playing like a legendary the same turn so like maybe so that's you're kind of looking at having to have like six mana to play it plus like thalia guardian of thraben or like gaddock teague or something like that to trigger it and they just ask for too much i just feel like there's there's just better cards in in modern you tashar and then slam your mox amber which gives you right. the reanimation plus your amber turned on i don't know how you're not seeing this todd yeah no i mean that's that's what i'm saying that's that's why i think it could be definitely a thing in standard i, I don't not sold that's going to be good enough for modern but yeah the bar is just set so high in that yeah. format yeah that's what that's what i'm thinking but i i yeah. do think that that could be definitely a, a standard thing uh at some point okay do you think cat cast down makes it as a one of in some oh definitely uh, even more than a one of. i think it's very good in blue black control um i think it's a better removal spell than uh go for the throat um and the big thing the big reason why and people were playing go for the throat in those kind of decks or even just green black mid-range or blue black control before uh, but the big thing besides not hitting the affinity creatures right now is that go for the throat does not kill hollow one. And that's just, that's pretty bad because neither does fatal push or anything. So cast down is a nice option there to get rid of hollow one or Gurmag angler and get rid of like the, the big creatures as well as plenty of other small creatures. So I definitely think cast down is a, a nice addition to modern. 
Sadly, it's an uncommon, so foils at $5 don't have me very excited. No, not at all. Oh, it also smells like the kind of thing you get a promo for. Oh, yeah. This is definitely going to be an F&M promo at some point or, you know, something like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. So just a couple more for modern. Song of Fraley's. Does this ring any bells for all right, you? All right. So... I'm not exactly sure with this one. So this is the uh, two man. This one's also an uncommon too. I always think this one's a rare, but this one's an uncommon. Yeah, it feels yeah, like a it rare. does. It does really feel like a rare, like a cryptolith, right? So yeah, two mana. The first and second chapters until your next turn, creatures you control gain add a mana of any color, and then the third one put a one one counter on each creature you control. They get gain vigilance, trample, indestructible. I I'm not. <sighs> I don't know exactly where this would go in modern. You know, like maybe like a green white tokens. I'm not sold that this is better than Crypto Thrite just in general, that it will always stay out. So I don't really have any uh, high uh, desire to play this in Modern. Um, I could see this being a pretty good card for the green-black snake deck in Standard, the Whiny Constrictor deck, where Mm -hmm. you can just have the extra... You have like lots of like creatures like Merfolk, Branchwalker, Jaylight Ranger, Winding Constrictor that you want to just be tapping for mana anyway. You can use the mana to cast a big walking ballista, get your Verdurous Gear Hulks out there, that kind of stuff. And then putting a 1-1 counter on your creatures when you have Winding Constrictor out, you know, is obviously a very big thing. Maybe maybe that maybe the Hardened Scales deck in Modern could use this. Ooh, there you <laughs> go. That, that could be a thing. Yeah. I think the most interesting version of that I saw recently was actually Affinity with Hardened Scales. Right, yeah. Well, like, that's, yeah, that's that's kind of the Hardened Scales deck, but it, it had, like, Winding Constrictor also, right? That one that you saw? I see. Yeah, th- th- I, I, I saw versions before that did they weren't running artifact creatures, they were running green creatures mm-hmm. with counters on them, and that was clearly not Yeah, no, the artifact creatures is definitely w- the way to go. But yeah, maybe this maybe this goes there, because, you know, putting an extra counter on, on your... Uh, uh, all those artifact creatures, the Arcbound Ravager, Walking Ballista, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I don't, maybe that could do something. Hmm. All right, so the final one was Shalai Voice of Plenty, a card that you said you were coming around on as something you're going to be testing in Modern. Yeah, I didn't love it at first, thinking about it in the Green White Company deck that I that I basically always play. Uh, but talking with uh, Ross this past weekend, driving to Atlanta and back, uh, I've really started to come around on the card. Um, I definitely wanted to try it out in like an Eldritch Evolution shell, but even the company shell, I think it could be worth it. Shalai is definitely more of a main deck card. It's not a sideboard card at all. Um, I think it's that's where it will really shine is if you can play in your your main deck. But what it does is it gives you Planeswalkers you control and other creatures you control hexproof. So it just can protect like Knight of the Reliquary, which is just incredibly important. It can block Mantis Rider very well. It's just a nice flying blocker there, or uh, Flame Wake Phoenix, which is which is also a problematic card. Um, and then by giving you uh, hex proof, that means that your opponents can't do stuff like use like Liliana the Veil minus to make you sacrifice a creature. They can't uh, use Escape Shift and put all of the copies uh, from Valakut uh, targeting you. They cannot uh, Grape Shot you know, all your other creatures or you, they have to use their grape shot copies on Shalai first. And to make that even harder for Storm, they can't even Gifts Ungiven you because they, they just can't even cast Gifts Ungiven because it targets you. Um, so, and besides that, just has like a lot of like other like small implications just everywhere. The thing that makes it really interesting is that it, it matches up so well against the card Lightning Bolt and 
the whole modern format it revolves around the card lightning bolt so i think that's where it will really shine interesting and it's probably a what a one of in the deck two of? yeah probably probably yeah probably one to two of um i think yeah something like like that um i i did see that for the team modern super league that's going on tonight uh one of the teams i don't remember if it was fireball or the play design team in the finals here has a uh has shalai in one of their decks in a um sahili combo deck because it can protect sahili and protect Feldar Guardian and everything. And they have four Eldritch Evolutions in the main of that, that deck, and they can go get Shalai first before they try comboing. <laughs> that sounds like LSV nonsense, who <laughs> has been trying to break Sahili for a while, which is something I'm in full support of, given that I'm holding multiple Russian coils. <laughs> oh, nice, yeah. So um, Sahili is on my list as going to get broken and modern at some point. Yeah, that's you, a good one. That's a good you one. You also get to play Shalai in your Hardened Skills deck. <laughs> That is true. It is very good in the hard skills deck, and you can get the extra mana to activate it if you play a Song of Freilies. Wow, this is coming together. All right. So here's the thing about Shalai: is there are angel collectors are a thing, um, angel decks are a thing in EDH. Um, Shalai slots into attracts the Planeswalkers, which is one of the most popular decks in EDH, where she protects you and all of your Planeswalkers, um, and. She also works in decks that care about plus one plus one counters because of her green ability, which you don't probably probably don't care about much, but EDH certainly. Oh will. yeah, definitely. That's good there. It's also just going to be a a big player in standard. It honestly will be. It wasn't quite yet now, but I think it will be going forward. We saw green white, uh, just mid range stuff win the online PTQ with Shalai, um, and I've also and I think that. Those decks are just going to kind of get a little more popular now after it won the PTQ. They look they look pretty strong right now. Like just the white cards in, in the set and just in the format are just so good. And um, the other thing is the blue-white, even in the blue-white flash deck, which is becoming very popular these days, um, I think Shalai is just a really good addition to the blue-white flash deck, even without being able to activate the other ability where you can cast it with flash. And so you can protect one of your creatures from a removal spell or the, the big thing it does in standard, which it also does a little bit in modern also is your opponents cannot cast saddle the wreckage against you whenever you have a Shalai out because they can't target hmm. you. So um, that's, that's a big thing in standard. That's the main sweeper that the control decks are relying on, and especially if you have flash and they just try to cast a sell the wreckage and you just flash in Shalai and that's just game over. So current price of the card, $6, $12 for foils. Uh, I think I want the foils again, and I think I want them later. Um, and I'm hoping she doesn't do too well in standard to drive the price up. Yep. Yep. Definitely foils later. Uh, but this seems like this is probably going to just kind of stay around uh, 5 to $8 card. You know, maybe 4 like in the summer, summer lows. But I don't really expect this to go much lower than $4. Fair. All right, so we're going to quickly breeze through some EDH Brawl cards here uh, with definitely more of a focus on EDH than Brawl. Um, Slime put the Stowaway. Um, one of the top three commanders from Dominaria so far on EDH Wreck. Um, it's only an uncommon, so I'm not particularly interested in this card other than, say, Russian Foils, um, which I picked up some under $10 the other day. Um, but I am interested in the cards that go in the deck. Um Bulk boxes of plenty getting raided looking for Sapperling related cards these days. Yeah, Sapperling is a very popular casual archetype. Um, and especially right now. Um, <laughs> it's an understatement prior to Dominaria. <laughs> 
yeah uh was it was it like huge prior to dominaria as well no i'm laughing because yeah, i could not yeah. pick a more casual tribe if i wanted to like it essentially does not exist yeah. <laughs> well i mean there was still guru uh, uh what's the there, there was another commander that something of spores what's uh let's see there's vertiloth no 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 Gave, oh, gave, gave. Spores. Yeah, but he wasn't a, a he wasn't really yeah. a tribal deck. Everyone played him as just a token deck. I mean, somebody out there might have done it based mm-hmm. on Sapperlane. The problem is there hasn't been a good Sapperlane card until Dominaria, basically. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I'm more excited by Maldrotha the Gravetide and implications for that deck because I think Maldrotha has a shot at approaching Atrax's level of interest. Mm-hmm. This card is so busted in EDH. Yeah, I, I could definitely see that. It is, it is, yeah, it is incredibly good. I mean, this is still just going to go down though. Like this, that's going to be open so much. That's only you know some people playing it in EDH. Like this, this is going to be much cheaper in the summer. Yeah, on this side of things, it's more about what do these cards turn on. So, for instance, I was taking a look at Foil Traumatizes last night Ooh. because Traumatize in a Modratha deck puts half your your deck in your graveyard. <laughs> which is then cards in your hand oh okay you can also traumatize yourself from the graveyard no no you can only cast the permanents oh permanents right 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 you can get like a good hedron crab going though get some fetch lands yeah you know a card is like obscene in these strategies in edh that people don't think about uh mesmeric orb i play it in my uh Sidisi, not Sidisi, yeah, Sidisi Undead Vizier deck, the one that makes the zombie tokens. You play that bad boy on turn two, and if nobody has a removal for it in like two turns, you are putting people, you're either making the graveyard decks very, very happy or putting people at risk of losing the game because that chews so many cards so fast. No, that's that's a good point. That actually is just, that seems really good in, in those format, in that format for sure. Yeah. What about the, um, I don't remember the name of the card, the four mana. I guess it's, I think it's Sylvan Awakening, the four mana card that puts all the lands from your graveyard back into play. Uh, Is that? This, no. No, it's oh. not Sylvan Awakening, because that's the new card. From the- it was la- from last year, right? Yeah. Uh, it was like it just rotated I out. I can see that from, picture of Nissa doing it, too. Uh, is that Renewal? Uh, yes. Renewal? So, Does that, so that doesn't see just a lot of play in these kind of decks in EDH? Oh. Yeah, yeah, that that should something. Those effects are going to make it in there because they're also going to run Gitrog Monster, right? Yeah. Splendid reclamation, splendid reclamation. Yep. Yes, and they're going to run Gitrog Monster and and have a whole land recursion sub theme. The the other thing they can I was buying foils of last night was Secrets of the Dead from Dark Ascension. Uh, two and a blue for an enchantment that says whenever you cast a spell from your graveyard, draw a card. Ooh, nice. You yeah. found copies of that. I yeah. looked for foils and they're Nasty. already gone. There was one at eight bucks. Yeah, I got oh. some of them. The uh, the other thing is Spore Frog of all things. That's going to be a thirty or forty dollar foil by the time this is done because that's a one for one mana a turn. You get to fog your opponents for. Oh wow, yeah, that's true. What about uh, what about Terravore? You know, it was only Terravore Odyssey. It was that was the only time it was ever printed. Yeah, I have them in my Gitrog deck, and I have them there for flavor, but it's basically. Um, outclassed at this point okay even with like the mesmeric orb yeah because like how big does that card have to be for you to care like Uh is a three mana 2020 good enough (laughs) i would hope so it's it's honestly it generally isn't especially when you consider that you can you can play cards with that are half that size with just so much more utility and also that's a lot of lands that have to be in your graveyard well it's in all graveyards 
All graveyards. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you can hit like the 15, 15, 20, 20, but I don't know. I've never been happy to cast this card. Okay. I, I do expect Mystic Remora to sh- to uh, gain some uh, momentum on buy lists, however, because this is the blue... <laughs> this card definitely predates Todd's involvement mm-hmm. in the hobby. Um, it's from Ice Age, I believe. It's a one-man enchantment with cumulative upkeep one. Whenever an opponent plays a non-creature spell, you can draw a card unless they pay four. So cumulative upkeep, you pay one, then the turn after you pay two, then three, then four to keep it in play. Um, but you can just let it go whenever you want to with Modrotha and just bring it back for one blue again. Yeah, this card uh, is it's sort of amazing because it's Ice Age and nothing from Ice Age has ever been worth any money at all. But it's like, damn, is it really time? Are we finally seeing a card start to move that was from Ice Age? Well, it's funny you say that. I just buy listed an entire binders worth of Ice Age this afternoon and left over from the Super Collection. And... I was stunned. Almost everything in it was 40 cents on buy list. So it was like a $300 buy list order. And it was just a pile of trash. Like none of these cards are playable anywhere. But it's just been long enough now that the buy list, like for the occasional person that wants them, they need to have some in stock. That That's so odd to me just because I've seen so many of them that at this point, I would imagine there are people with like tens of thousands of Ice Age, you know, just not even paying attention to them. And then it's going to kind of like, Ice Age will pick up a little bit of steam and they'll be like, oh, I guess everything in here buy list for 50 cents type of thing. And then the market will get hit with another 40,000 Ice Age cards as people actually go through the work of pulling those boxes back out. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the top three commanders here are Slimefoot, Modrotha, and Joda, Archmage Eternal. Um, Jason Alt on our team wrote a, posted a good article this afternoon covering a lot of this, so I won't dig into, into it too deeply, other than to say that from the commanders get foreign foils, um, if anything, and but pay more attention to the cards that they activate suddenly that weren't good before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely could see like this Jota um, card being real big in EDH because you get a five-color commander that <laughs> traditionally the five-color yeah. commanders just haven't been very playable, but this is just a, a very playable card. Just four mana, four three is nice, and then spending five for all... Yeah, like, I, I really like the upside of this card in commander. Five, five yeah. for anything? So you're basically casting Eldrazi for five, Bringers for five. Um, you can cast that Liliana Wrath that kills all the creatures and puts them yep. into play on your side. Rise of the uh, Rise of the Dark gross. Realms reanimates all creatures from all graveyards. Yeah, yeah it's gross. Um, so Gilded Lotus foils are currently at ten dollars. Uh, I think that you're going to get a shot at those as a foil rare closer to five or six. At which point, stashing some away for maybe like a two-year hold is probably pretty Definitely. wise. What, what were the foils before the reprint? I think FTVs were up to maybe 20, okay. I want to say. You, were, you said Gilded Lotus, correct? Yeah. Yeah, right around 15, 17, I think. Uh, maybe a touch ahead of that. No, no, it was about 15. About 15, because I remember I sold one right before it was announced to be reprinted, and it was okay. 15. okay. Yeah, yeah, it looks like they crested 20 for the M13 versions. So it's probably going to be, I don't use any rush on cards like this, but this is enough of a staple in EDH that you move in on it in the summer and never look back. This is a type of card I think that's that's tricky because you absolutely want to buy into this uh, down the road. <clears throat> you know, you give, it a, you give it a couple months, let the supply really 
hit uh, price bottom out and then pick your copies up. But like this is such a good reprint target that, you know, even if it only takes a year for you to make your money back, somebody, you know, Wizards could put it out in another commander set and just crush you again. Yeah, they've been doing that a lot, too, of like print, reprint a card and then just reprint it again, like right away. They've been doing that a lot. And so I could definitely see this just being in a master's product, you know, also or anything like that. Right. So next on the list for EDH, a couple of pretty powerful equipments that aren't going to see play anywhere else. Helm of the Host, uh, four casting cost legendary artifact equipment that makes copies of your commander, presumably, but anything else is fair game as well. Um, at the beginning of combat, and the token gets haste. So it basically doubles whatever your best creature on the on the board is, but the equip cost is five. So you're going to see that in some big mana decks. Black Blade Reforged is more of a like Sisse, Captain Sisse style card um, where you get plus one, plus one for every land you control. So you want to be pulling a bunch of lands out of your deck and then equipping it to legendary creatures for three. Um, nothing too exciting there. Again, you could look at both of those those foils um in the summer lull but i think some of these other cards are a higher priority i like primeval's glorious rebirth as a real long-term foil um because it's almost certainly going to slot into attracts of super friends as well since it brings all your dead planeswalkers back and oh yeah that's, that's an auto including that tech so i have a question about this helm of the host you know like the they have like those commander only cards that were like they had some keyword where whenever you attack one thing you make like a copy and attacks all the other like one one person you make like uh, like blade, blade okay, of cells. Yeah. You're thinking of was that a creature or an uh, artifact? Blade. Okay, so that, that was equipment. Was okay, so like does okay, so this doesn't work. That you can't, you can't like have that. Okay, I, I was thinking that was like a creature that had that ability, and that you could put this on that creature. And but yeah, never mind. Well, you you I, could equip. Oh, because so <laughs> you could put Helm of the Host on a legendary creature. Uh then at the beginning of combat, create a token of that creature that's not legendary. If you can equip it instant speed, which there are cards that let you do that, you can equip blade of self to that creature and attack and get several copies of the non legendary version of that creature. So like you can get there. It's a lot of work. Yeah. Okay. All right. There's, there's, there's going to be a whole bunch of weird combos with, with the helm of the host, like even just with combat celebrant, right? Oh yeah. It's it's great with combat celebrant. It's great with, uh, that the, uh, creature that you can sacrifice and take or that you can put on the bottom of your library and make another turn you like that legendary creature <laughs> yeah the, the new one right yeah the new one from last set um gosh, i'm blanking on the name but the blue creature two mana blue creature yeah i don't remember the name either but i know exactly what you mean so tatiova benthic druid if ever there was a a busted edh commander or part of the 99 um this is it this is the russian sounding merfolk princess that gains you a life and draws you a card every time a land comes yep. into play. Yeah. Like this, this card is just, I mean, it, this would just seems like a staple for every blue green, you know, ramp big mana deck, which seems like basically every single commander deck. It seems like, <laughs> you know, format. you just want to play ramp spells and cyclonic rifts <laughs> and commander a bunch. And this seems like this is perfect for that. This card looks great in foil, but it's an uncommon. So again, Russian foils is where it's at, but this may activate a bunch of other cards. So pay attention to EDH rec stats. Um, it's on theme if you get it in Russian foils. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, Lich's Mastery. This is where I think this is actually going to shine. We talked about Shalai. That should also make perfect sense in EDH. Oath of Teferi also uh, auto-include in Attracts of Super Friends because you get to use their Planeswalker abilities twice per turn, which is disgusting. 
Oh yeah, definitely. And and then the eldest reborn, which doesn't uh, seem like such a big deal uh, when you're playing one on one, but gets a heck of a lot better when you're playing a card that says each opponent sacrifices a creature or planeswalker. Then each opponent discards a card. Then you get to pick whatever you want from a graveyard and put it into play. Yeah, that's the uh, stage three on this is definitely the best because anyone that's ever cast a um, sepulcher primordial uh, almost always wins the game after that. So the odds that you lose after hitting stage three on Eldest Reborn is low and you can pull that off. I mean, you know, with a proliferate, you can hit that the same turn you cast it. This is a this is a saga where I expect people to over time gain more tools to manipulate how, wh- which chapter it's on, <laughs> and then it gets significantly more nasty. Mm-hmm. We just need to return to uh, Mirrodin, I guess. But again, this is one of these weird ones where it feels like it's a mythic or a rare, but it's an uncommon. So it's going to be pretty tough to make money there. Yeah. Um, so that wraps up EDH. Um, only one card I wanted to flag outside those three formats: Rat Colony. Okay. Because because people buy 20 or 30 of these at once and they are currently 75 cents, likely to get down below 50 by the time things are we're at truly peak supply in the early summer. Is this something you pick up like 400 of and then just buy list for triple the price in two years? I mean, I guess so. It seems like a lot of work, you know, because it is just a common. It's not even uncommon. Um, so, I could, yeah, I mean, I this will definitely you know that will definitely be an option but that'll be a lot of work to for you know the little bit of gain but this will definitely this will be a card that will just be going up because you can just play as many rat colonies as you want yeah i mean the thing about rarity and magic is that it's all relative to the number of copies you can play in your deck right so a common that you can play 30 of is more more mythic than a mythic i guess that's true yeah i guess that makes sense my concern basically is these tend to be sort of self-limiting um, in the sense that like, if these are ever six bucks, no one's going to build a deck with 30 rat canal colonies. If they're six bucks a piece, they'll pay. There's sort of a limit because you can play so many. That's so hard. If, if they get too expensive, people just can't play it anymore. It's like the good times budget ceiling. Essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Because like no one is ever building a competitive because th- th- we have relentless rats. Like we know what this card looks like, uh, which has been around forever and it's gotten expensive, but like a couple bucks uh, at most. I don't think it's ever been more than has it ever been more than three dollars. So, you know, the, the type of person going out there and building a rat deck isn't uh, interested in spending a large chunk of money on them. Right, which is why you should probably not even look at foils, right? Because what kind of lunatic is foiling out their rat colony deck? Yeah, so it looks like Relentless Rats from Fifth Dawn is currently at its peak at about 240. Right. From Fifth Dawn, at least. Yeah. I I think this card's easy money. Like, we might be able to snag 100 of these in Europe for 25 cents a piece and then buy list them a year later for a dollar or more. And that's just, like, easy to throw in with a buy order you're already sending in. Um, but I digress. Let's uh, wrap it up with Todd's top cards for each format. Uh, Todd, what do you think the top card for from Dominaria for standard is? I think it's got to be Karn, Scion, Aversa. All right. You, you see Karn as being enduring throughout the rest of the season? Yeah, I really do. I think it just fits into so many different strategies and everything. Um, yeah, it's it's just too good. And And what if we get an artifact theme sometime before he rotates? Oh yeah, that could that could even be better. 
Um, it will be a little worse without Walking Ballista. I think it works really well with Walking Ballista. I think it works really well with uh, Heart of Kirin with being able to crew very well. But I mean, the the card can just kind of slot into into everywhere because with just four mana of any color to cast it is just not a high cost for decks to play in standard. Fair. So I'm guessing for modern, you're choosing between Karn, Scion of Urza, and Damping Sphere. Yeah, and I think. I think I'd go Damping Sphere here just because it's going to be in so many decks um, and like, or at least has the potential to go in so many decks. Uh, I have definitely heard plenty of people that like, you know, that maybe they like to play Jund a bunch. And so you're like, well, what about Damping Sphere to help beat, beat Tron? And they're still playing Fulminator Mages instead and stuff like that. So I, I definitely see like some, um, like non-desire to play the card, I guess. I don't I don't really know how to say that, but um, I could see it making less of an impact than everybody thought, you know. Uh, but overall, I think it's going to have more of an impact on the format than anything else in the set. Hmm. Fair, fair enough. And I think based on what we've seen from EDH Rex stats so far and the buzz I've heard in the community, I'm pretty sure Muldratha is the most impactful card for EDH. Okay, I could see that. I, I, it may be Tatiova as well. I think that's like maybe the other one they could go mm-hmm. with that. Well, I think I think you were right in saying that she's just so good mm-hmm. that you're going to see more of her played. But I think more people are going to be excited about building Meldratha, so it's probably going to turn on more specs. I I, I would that's agree that point. as well. You're going to shove Tatiova in a bunch of places, but Meldratha turns on ten cards that weren't there before. Hmm. All right, so that's a wrap for our Dominary review. Thanks again, huge thank yous to uh, Todd Stevens, uh, the man around town on the SEG tour and on his stream. Do you want to tell people where they can find you online, Todd? Yeah, you can find me on my stream at twitch.tv slash ToddStevensMTG and the same on Twitter, uh, ToddStevensMTG there as well. Awesome. Um, do you, what are you uh, streaming over the next couple of days? Um on Thursday, I'll be able to stream again. Uh, going to be busy uh, tomorrow. Um, and I'll probably just be playing some green-white value town to prepare for the weekend because it looks like I'll be playing modern and playing that. And then next week, and so because it's SCG Baltimore this weekend, team event. After that, um, next week, then I'll be free again. And I have a good list of donation decks that I need to get to, about nine of them. And so a lot of fun modern stuff that I'll be playing. Very cool. So one final question put you on the spot. What do you think is going to win the Pro Tour? Who, uh, just who, like individual wise? No, deck wise. Oh, deck wise. Okay. So what, all right. So what's going to win the pro tour? Um, I believe that a, Ooh, okay. I'm just going to go with a, uh, history banalia Karn deck. So something with those cards and who's going to win. All right. And then who's going to win. It's going to be, um, man, I used to always say Michael Majors cause he's my favorite, but he, he doesn't play anymore cause he works for wizards. Um, uh, I'll go with, I'll go with, uh, Brad Nelson cause he's a hometown guy. So I'll okay. go with the hometown guy, Brad Nelson. All right. All fair right. Enough. Fair enough. All right. Thanks very much. And, uh, we'll see you guys all next week. Mm-hmm.